Wow, okay. Let's see if we can do this. All right. Uh, you know, every, every church has a story of how they got started. And the story of Calvary 12 years ago was Carrie and I and five people meeting in a living room, wondering, dreaming, hoping that maybe God would do something amazing and special. And I look at all of you, and it's, it's the fulfillment of a promise. Um, when we were first starting our church, we, we didn't have a building. Well, 12 years later, we still don't. Um, but uh, we were looking for a place, any place that would let us meet there. We talked to schools. They wouldn't let us. And we talked to different places, and, and they were, weren't really open. But I, I, everyone kept saying no, but I wouldn't give up. And so I found a place. Um, it was down the street uh, from uh, the, the home that we met in, in Miami Lakes. It was this kung fu studio. And uh, I talked to the assistant sensei, or I'm not really sure how their hierarchical structure is, but it was, what, it was the assistant dojo master or something. Anyway, uh, assistant ninja. And um, he agreed to let us meet there, which was great because they actually already had chairs and a podium. And so... Um, and the other thing that was really cool about uh, the, the Kung Fu studio is that one side of the whole building was a mirror. And so no matter, I thought it was really cool because no matter what size we were as a church, we'd always look like we were double the size. <laughs> so I thought that was really cool. And then the other thing was, I, I thought it'd be a cool thing, like we could really get into it and make it part of our our culture as a church, we met in a kung fu studio. And so when uh, we would have our greeters set up, and I had this whole thing worked out, and people would come in and we'd say, hi, welcome to Calvary Fellowship. That, that was kind of our, our thing. Um, so I remember um, Pastor John was, was around back then, and I, I took John and another leader, uh, a guy named Jason, um, with me um, to check the place out. And, uh, you know, so I kind of show them a little bit around. Now, you have to understand something about me. Um, I don't really have a very good sense of smell um, at all. And so, anyway, so that's, just keep that in mind. Um, so I show them the Kung Fu studio, and I'm like, and so afterwards I'm talking to Jason and John. I'm like, what do you think? And, uh, and they say, Bob, um, did you smell that place? And I said, yeah, I didn't smell anything. And they're like, listen, that place smells like feet with like a hint of armpit. Um, <laughs> And I said, well, you know, we can buy Lysol cans. And they, and they said, Bob, a Lysol, Lysol nuclear bomb couldn't fix what's going on in, in that building. So I took their advice, and we didn't start meeting there. In fact, we, um, we started meeting at a, a little hotel down the street uh, from here, about 15 minutes from here. And that's where we got started. That was our first step as a church 12 years ago. Um, and finding our second place was interesting because we had outgrown the little um, courtyard, and we were looking for a new, uh, a new place to meet, and I had this idea. There was a cinema down the street that met on Main Street in, in Miami Lakes, and I thought, hey, I'll, I'll go there one, one evening and talk to the manager and see if they'll let us meet there. And uh, so I talked to the manager, and, and she's like, well, you know, I think we're, we're somewhat open to it, but, and then she said, now, is it okay with your faith that you meet in a movie theater? And I said, um, how about I take care of the theology, you get it cleared with the general manager, and we'll just do that. So anyway, the manager said, yes, we were off and running. And um, probably the most famous Sunday that we had at the five or six years that we met in the, in the movie theater was uh, the Sunday of the Easter Squirrel. Now, if I can ask, how many of you remember the Easter Squirrel? Yes, okay. I wasn't wooing that day. Um, we, uh, this is an Easter. We were doing three services 
in, in this movie theater we were meeting in, and all of a sudden, if you weren't there, the power went out completely. And um, we didn't know what happened. FPL shows up before our first service starts to tell us that somehow a squirrel had gotten into the, um, like the transformer or something, had bit down or had gotten in between like these two connections, had electrocuted himself, and in the, in the process had taken out an entire city block. Um, in fact, I think we have a picture of the Easter squirrel, which I took. You say, ah, oh, that squirrel is satanic. <laughs> an agent of the devil. And, um, and I'll tell you what, I'm glad it was dead because if it wasn't, I was taking him out. And, um, but we did those three Easter services with no AC. And it must have been 10,000 degrees in the theater. If, you, if some of you guys were there, you remember how hot it was. And uh, we had lots of people come to know Jesus that day. And I don't think it had anything to do with the preaching. I think people were like, man, if hell is anywhere near this hot, I got to get saved. This is brutal. This is brutal. Um, well, after that, we moved from there to a high school, Barbara Goldman High School, and uh, we were there for a couple of years, and that allowed us, it was a much bigger auditorium, so we went down to two services, and, um, and then, uh, I don't know if anybody, any of you remember the first Easter we had at uh, Goldman, um, there was no AC, and uh, some people thought, is it the spirit of the Easter squirrel back to haunt us, and... Um, it wasn't. It wasn't the spirit of the Easter squirrel. It was simply a government employee who didn't really care and didn't turn the AC on. So both agents of evil. But anyway. Um, <laughs> but, you know, I, I mean, 12 years later, and I, I'm just so blown away um, from that living room to see what God has done. And uh, people ask me how I feel, you know. I mean, I, I, I watched this video, um, and I'm, I'm, I'm overwhelmed, you know, um, I came to know Jesus, and I was a 19-year-old kid. I was confused, and I was lost. And, and can I just tell you this, that I wasn't looking for God? I wasn't. But I'm so grateful and thankful that he was looking for me and that he, and that he found me. Um, but I, I, I look at these guys, you know, that I love so much, you know, Dan and Pedro, who are uh, some of my best friends, um, you know, that I started out with, and Bob. Gosh, I, I love Bob so much. Um, you know, he's... Uh, He's been like a dad to me in many ways. He's been a big brother to me in so many ways. And um, it's just amazing to hear uh, the, their words to me. Um, but I'm, I'm grateful for people that are here. Um, I'm grateful for Pastor John. Is he, is he uh, out here somewhere? Uh, he might be back here somewhere. Yeah, where is he? Uh, yeah. Um, you know, some of you don't know. When I tell the story that Calvary was my wife and I and five people, John was one of those five people. And uh, John was a student of mine at the college that I used to run. Pedro was a student of mine. And, um, I, uh, and I remember one night after class talking to John and telling him what God had put in my heart about starting a church. And uh, I only asked one person in this world to come with me, besides my wife, um, to come with me to start the church, and it was John Solaroli. And John, I, I'm so glad you said yes. And I'm grateful to you. And uh, for the last 12 years, we've been building the plane at 35,000 feet. Uh, and it's been amazing. Uh, I'm grateful to people like Mark Smith. Is Mark here? Um, is he here? I don't see, I see him. Where's he here? Yeah. 
Let me tell you, we started our church. We started our church in Mark's living room, and um, he was uh, he was so gracious to open his home. He didn't know me. And I remember him and I and another guy named Dennis, we had breakfast together at this place that is like the worst breakfast I've ever had in my life. I've never gone back. Um, but while the food was horrible, uh, the fellowship was good. And we were able to talk, and um, I shared with him my heart for reaching the city and, and leaving Calvary Fort Lauderdale and coming here and, and, um, and beginning a work, um, a ministry. And he was excited, and he said, yeah, let's do it. And and, uh, you know, Mark has been the picture of faithfulness for 12 years. He has never told anybody, he's never made a big deal that this church started in his house. He's never made, made a, a big fuss about it. He has simply served faithfully, quietly, and, uh, and our church is better because of people like Mark Smith. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. And I'll tell you this. I re- I'll tell you a funny story about Mark is that Mark was... He was helping start our church, but he had been attending another church, obviously, because uh, he was a Christian. So he was attending another church, and then he was helping us get started, and he was praying. And he says, God, he tells the story a little funnier than I do, but he's praying, and he's saying, God, what should be my home church? And he's really praying and asking God what should be his home church. And he says to me, he says, man, he says, Bob, and God just spoke to me. And he said, Mark, think about what you're saying. Home church. I brought a church into your house. That's where you should go because you live there. And, uh, and that's, you know, so that's how he started attending. Um, and, uh, you know, I'm grateful for Pastor Mark, um, who many of you know. Yeah. Um, Mark's around here somewhere. Um, Mark was actually at our first service uh, 12 years ago. Um, he was a 21-year-old kid. Um, showed up to our very first service, but he would attend, and then he would run out the side door. And I didn't get to talk to him until about four or six weeks into our, um, uh, into, into our church getting started. And so <clears throat> we, uh, one Sunday, I had somebody else close in song or do announcements or something. And so, and I said, and I told my wife, I said, Carrie, I'm going to stand at the side door, and I'm not going to let this kid leave until he talks to me. And so he... Um, I tracked him down because I had heard his band before, and he was, in, he was in a really good band, and he was a gr- really gifted singer. And I told him after a couple of months, I said, I believe that God is calling you to be the worship leader at Calvary. And, uh, and he said, but, he, well, here's the problem, Pastor. I don't play guitar. And I said, that's no problem. I'll teach you how to play guitar. And uh, shortly after, Mark joined our team, and uh, he joined our staff, and I was paying him the equivalent of lunch money uh, to join. He was working full time for like $8 a day. Um, and, uh, and, um, and we would have staff meetings at our house because we didn't have an office. And so after the staff meetings, Mark, he got a guitar or bought a guitar or something for like 100 bucks or something. And, uh, and I remember giving Mark guitar lessons after our staff meetings. Now, what's funny is, and this is just kind of a funny musician thing, Mark couldn't play an F chord. Uh, now, an F chord is a bar chord. If you don't have any musical sense, it doesn't mean anything. I could be saying it's a Z chord or something. Uh, anyway, but he couldn't play an F chord. And so Mark, for like the first year and a half that he led worship, he would avoid any song that had an F in it. <laughs> so, you know, like F is, a, you know, there's only like seven notes. So eventually you're going to hit that one. But he would avoid any song that had an F because he just couldn't, bar, you know, couldn't do it. And so Mark had a repertoire of about eight songs. And uh, he would just interchange the eight songs 
Um, you know, until like we were all singing those songs in our sleep. That's all we heard. Uh, you know, he played the eight songs in, in, in various order. Well, as you can tell, you know, Mark was our worship leader um, for 10 years. And, uh, you know, yeah, and did an amazing job, amazing job. And, um, you know, most of you know the kind of leader that Mark uh, has developed into. Some of you know that Mark has assumed a new role as executive pastor here at Calvary, um, where he's taken on a much greater leadership role. And uh, really, he's, hel- he's um, you know, uh, taking on a, a role of helping me lead the church. And, um, but, you know, I want to tell you that over the years, besides being a great leader, um, he's, been, um, a very, uh, he's been a great friend to me. Uh, more than anything, and uh, I'm very, very grateful for him, for his friendship uh, in all these, all these years. And, um, you know, the person that I'm most grateful for um, is the, who I believe is the unsung hero of Calvary, and that's my wife, Carrie. Um, you know, some of you guys don't know this. There would be no Calvary without Carrie, because there were moments that I wanted to quit, that it just got really hard. And she was the one that kept believing, that kept trusting, that kept praying. And she just said, well, let's just go, just, let's just a little longer. Let's just go a little more, and then we'll see what happens. And it was, you know, let's just give it a few more months, and we'll, and we'll see what happens. And, and my wife has literally done everything um, in, in this church. Um, she has served doing anything, doing any, everything, really, in, in many respects at times. Um, over the years at Calvary, has never sought any accolades, has never sought any recognition or any reward. Her, she is not um, somebody who, like, wants to stand on the stage and be recognized. This is not, uh, not who she is. Um, and, uh, but she has just wanted to faithfully serve, faithfully serve the Lord and faithfully serve God's people. And, um, you know, Kara, I know you're in the back, but you are for sure the greatest woman I've ever known. And, uh, and I'm honored, I'm honored to be your husband. And every day, um, I try to be the kind of man that's deserving of you. Um, and uh, I'll show you a picture of us uh, years ago from the theater. I found this recently. Now, you'll note two things. Um, one is that I'm skinny. Um, and the other is that I have hair. Um, and you say, well, what happened? Um, I had three kids. And uh, that's kind of what happened. Um, and, uh, and I'm so grateful for my kids, man. For Mia, for Xander and Olivia. Those, I, I love them so much. Um, yesterday I was walking with Xander. And uh, we were just walking around the house. And he just holds my hand as we are walking from the, the, my bedroom over to his room. And I said, Xander, I love you. You're my big boy. And he turns to me and he says, Bobby, I love you too. You're my big boy. <laughs> and, uh, and uh, you know, uh, I remember the day that Mia realized that I was Pastor Bob. She freaked out. We were sitting at the, at the table. We were eating dinner. And someone called and uh, someone had called me Pastor Bob or whatever it is. I was retelling a story. And someone came up and said, Pastor Bob. And she, said, she says, Bobby. You're Pastor Bob? And I said, yes. And she said, whoa, that's amazing. Why didn't you ever tell me? And I'm like, I don't know. I just didn't really come up. You know, this isn't like a secret identity. You know, (laughs) like I'm Pastor Bob and Aquaman. You know, it just didn't come up. But listen, every, every church has a story. And the church at Thessalonica is no different. The church at Thessalonica was planted by the Apostle Paul 
on his second missionary journey. Paul went to Thessalonica, which is a city there um, in in what is modern-day Turkey. And uh, when he was released from prison from a town called Philippi, you can read that story in Acts chapter 16. And um, Thessalonica was a big city. It was a city of over 200,000 people, um, which was a huge city in the ancient world. Acts 17 tells us that Paul was only there for three weeks. He only had three weeks to start this church, plant this church, and establish this church. And in those three weeks, Paul shared what he was going to share. He left, and now as some time has gone by, he's writing them this letter in 1 Thessalonians. And I would invite you to open your Bible with me to 1 Thessalonians because that's where we're going to begin a brand new book study, a brand new series of teachings called How to Prepare for the End of the World. And um, you see, when Paul was writing this book, and most scholars agree that 1 Thessalonians is the oldest book in the New Testament and the first letter that the Apostle Paul wrote. And he's writing for a couple of reasons. He's writing because he wants to know how they're doing. He's writing because he also wants to remind them about the, the return of Jesus Christ. Because this is one of the themes of both, of both First and Second Thessalonians. The return of Jesus. And that his, his return could happen at any moment. It could happen today. Wouldn't it be awesome if it happened today? That would be a good thing, right? Yeah, it would be awesome. And listen, that being the case, that being the case that Jesus could come back at any moment, he wants to remind them and give them three things. Tell them three things. They just can't miss this. And look at what he says starting in chapter 1 in verse 1. This is what he says. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy... To the church of the Thessalonians, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We give thanks to you always for you all, making mention of you in our prayers, remembering without ceasing your work of faith, labor of love, and patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the sight of our God and Father, knowing, beloved brethren, your election by God. Now if you pause there and give me your attention. There's three things that the Apostle Paul wants to tell this group, that he wants to tell this church that he started, that he only had a few weeks with. But the first thing that he wants to say to them, if you're taking note, is he wants to tell them to get serious about your faith. Get serious about it. You see, there's three things that the Apostle Paul is going to highlight to show if a person's faith is real. Because lots of people talk about believing in God, but lo- uh, listen, but uh, lots of people are simply talking a good game. But those who are living in light of Jesus' return are living with a testimony, living with a story of how Jesus has changed their lives. In fact, let me read this to you. In Matthew 24, Jesus says these words. He says, A faithful, sensible servant is one whom the master can give responsibility of managing his other household servants and feeding them. If the master returns and finds that the servant has done a good job, there will be a reward. I tell you the truth, the master will put that servant in charge of all he owns. And, but what, will, what if the master is evil and he, the servant is evil and he says, my master won't be back for a while. And he begins beating the other servants, partying and getting drunk. The master will return unannounced and unexpected and he will cut the servant to pieces. And assign him a place with the hypocrites. And in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. You see, when we forget 
that Jesus is coming back and that he could come back today. It could cause us to become lazy in our service, lazy in our lives. And Paul notes that these believers didn't waver in their commitment to the Lord, but that they, it was a picture of faithfulness. He denotes three things. He says your work of faith, your labor of love, and, the, and your patience of hope. You see, can I tell you this, this story that Jesus tells? And he says that what if, a master, what if the servant thinks to himself, well, maybe my master isn't coming home anytime soon. And he begins to disobey. He begins to do what he shouldn't. He begins to get involved in that which he knows he ought not to. Well, then something happens. There's a reason. The same reason that this servant disobeyed is the same reason why we disobey God. Two reasons in particular. One is that we either don't believe him when he says not to do something, or two, we don't think we're going to get caught. That's, those are the only two reasons. Listen, what I'm going to say is, is, is not easy to catch at first, but let me... Uh, but it's hugely important. It's important for us in understanding why God says to do things and why God says not to. Listen, God doesn't say something is bad because it's sin. He says it's sin because it's bad. Let me say it again. God doesn't say something is bad because it's sin. He says it's sin because it's bad. You see, jealousy and envy aren't bad because they're sin. Jealousy and envy are, are, are sin because they're bad and they hurt us. Unforgiveness, same thing. It's not just bad because it's sin. No, no, no. It's sin because it's bad. Because it has the, the ability to really hurt us and destroy us. And so God, in his love, tells us to stay away from the things that can destroy our lives. And he classifies that as sin. But... When we do it anyway, it's because of one of these reasons. We either don't think we're going to get caught or we think we know better. I mean, have you ever thought about this? In fact, let me read you this verse and I'll explain this. Um, it says this in Hebrews chapter 4. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him whom we must give account. You see, have you ever thought about this? You ever thought about having to give an account to God? You ever thought about having to explain something to God, like why it happened? Like, could you imagine, like, you know, you last day on earth here, you stand before God, and God says, hey, I, I, was, um, I was watching, and I'm just, trying to I'm just trying to figure out, now, why exactly did you steal those hotel towels that time? <laughs> well, um, you know, it's interesting. Didn't think you were watching. Um, but, well, you know the story of Robin Hood? Well, I steal terry cloth from the rich and give them to the poor, which is me. That's what I do. And, uh, but I'm telling you, it's, it, it is, the, it is the, the weirdest thing. I mean, you think about it, like, the next time you're going to disobey God, if you ever ask, think, think about this, is this what I want to be doing when Jesus comes back? Like, uh, no, I don't. You know, uh, I used to work at this hoagie shop when I was in high school. And it was one of these things. They made, like, cheese steaks and subs and all this kind of stuff. And, um, and one day... Um, we were there, well, we were supposed to be working. We were actually playing in this poker tournament. Um, so we're having this, and the phones are ringing off the hook. And so one guy would sit out a hand just to take the order, and then he'd get back in the game, and so we'd keep playing. And then uh, we heard this door slam in the back, and it was Paul who was the boss. Uh, he was the owner, but he was supposed to be in Delaware, which is why we were playing poker. But he wasn't in Delaware. He was in the store. 
And then he shows up and we're like, hey, I'm in for two. You know, and it's like, uh, hey. Well, anyway, uh, he was mad, say the least. And he freaked out and threatened to fire all of us and all that if we didn't get our act together. And after that day, I'll never forget it, he always would say this. After that day, he would say, he would say I'm leaving, but I will be back when you least expect it. And I'm telling you, and he made good on that promise. A few months later, I came in on my day off because I was hungry and I was cheap, so I didn't want to pay for food, so I stopped there. And uh, so I went in the back and I made myself some mozzarella sticks. And then I didn't pay for them because nobody was around. Um, and so um, 10 minutes later, he comes in. And he says to my friend Drew, who was overseeing this operation at the time because he was the one working, and he says, Drew, why did you let Bobby come in and make mozzarella sticks and not pay for them? And we freaked out. We're like, dude, what do you have, radar? Like, how do you know? And he says, I was across the street watching you with binoculars. <laughs> They're like... First of all, work on the social life. Secondly, what's up with that? Anyway, he made Drew pay for them. That's the best part because it was his fault. Um, but I'm telling you, if, 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 if you know, <laughs> if we knew, if, if Drew and I knew that Paul was watching us, that he could come in every, listen, we, it would have altered him like, hello, sir, how may I help you today? I mean, it would have totally altered how we acted. But because we were not living with the certainty of his return, we disobeyed. The last thing you want to be doing when Jesus comes back is be goofing off. You know, the rapture comes and here, what were you doing? Well, I was just catching up on my episodes of Honey Boo Boo. And, uh, you know, that DVR is going to fill up. And, uh, you know, like I don't want to have to explain that. Well, you know, I just don't want to have to do that. Instead, listen, let our lives speak of the work of faith, the labor of love, and the patience of hope. He says this in verse 5. Look at what he says. For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and in much assurance, as you know what kind of men we were among you for your sake. And you became followers of us and of the Lord having received the word in much affliction with joy of the Holy Spirit so that you became examples to all in Macedonia and Achaia who believe. Now, if you pause there and give me your attention, here's the second thing that I want to tell you. Number one is that if really we think the end is near, we think Jesus is coming back, then number one, get serious about your faith. The second thing is, number two, is that I need to live a godly life. You ever think about this? I think about this stuff like, what would the world be like if everyone was like you or everyone was like me? Now, I mean, if, if, if everyone was like you, think about that. I mean, would it be like, man, everyone would be serving and loving each other. Everyone would be using their turn signals and recycling. I mean, you know, like what exactly would be happening? Um, you know, oh, man, it would be glorious if everybody was like me or be like, boy, if everybody was like me, that would be a nightmare. It'd be like an Alfred Hitchcock movie, basically, um, with zombies. And uh, so you kind of, you know, you're, you're wondering, listen, these Thessalonians were living a godly life through the example of Paul and Timothy. They were simply saying, listen, we watched you, Paul. We watched you. You delivered the word to us. You shared the gospel with us. And we're simply modeling what you showed us. And this is one of the motivations that they had, that Jesus is coming back. Do you know, this is a theme that comes up in every single chapter of these books. 
In fact, let me just show you if I can, if you'll indulge me for a second. I put them in your outline. At the end of this chapter, look at what he says in, 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 in verse uh, 9 and 10. For they themselves declare concerning us in what manner of entry we had to you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God to wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. That's chap the end of chapter 1. At the end of chapter 2, what is our hope or crown or joy, a, a, a crown of rejoicing? Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ at his coming? Chapter 3. So that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all the saints. Chapter 4, here's what he says. But I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as those who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. Chapter 5. You are all sons uh, you are all sons of light and sons of the day. We are not of the night nor of the darkness. Therefore, let us not sleep as others do, but let us watch and be sober. Every chapter of this book speaks of the return of Jesus and the manner of life that we ought to have. And what will it do? This is 1 John. We just finished studying this in chapter 3. It says, my dear friends, we, have, we are already God's children. But he has not yet shown us what we will be like when Christ appears. But we do know that we will be like him, for we will see him as he really is. And all those who have this eager expectation will keep themselves pure just as he is pure. The reality that Jesus is coming back should influence your life and motivate you to live the kind of life that honors God. Because all of us are influenced by different things. Right? My daughter, I, I see this so much with my five-year-old daughter, Mia. Mia loves the movie Kung Fu Panda and the sequel, you know, Kung Fu Panda 2, uh, and the show Kung Fu Panda Legends of Awesomeness. Um, and, uh, but she loves it so much, we can't let her watch it anymore. Uh, because Mia likes watching Kung Fu Panda and then likes doing Kung Fu on the bad guys. Unfortunately, she can't find bad guys. She can only find her three-year-old brother. And so she will karate chop him in the head, knock him down. Thankfully, Xander just got, uh, he's going to be Thor for Halloween, so he just got the hammer. So he's been, he's been taking care of business. Um, so, uh, <laughs> for real. Um, but, you know, I did this experiment. I did this experiment where I wouldn't let her watch Kung Fu Panda for a while. Instead, I said, we're not going to watch Kung Fu Panda. We're going to watch The Care Bears. And we're going to see, and I was fairly confident that there would be no blood as a result of the Care Bears. And I was right, even though I did find this picture not that long ago, um, these are the I don't care bears. Um, so anyway, you know, you got one guy, he's got like some kind of horn, the guy in the back smoking pot. I don't know what's going on with these guys. He's got a bat. And, uh, you know, anyway, uh, stay away from those guys. Um, but the regular Care Bears are nice. And here's what happens. Mia starts watching the Care Bears, and, and then she just walks over and starts hugging her brother and, and, and kissing her brother. Xander, I love you. Papi, I love you. And Xander's like, okay, let's walk, you know, relax. Let's keep the relationship professional, you know. Uh, but it's amazing. Why? Because the influences in her life are leading her a certain way. Listen, and the same way it's true for a five-year-old, the same way it's true for you and me. We're all influenced by that, which the, the things that are around us. That's why, listen, when you, when you come to Calvary 
and you hear God's word, and you're reading the Bible on, on your own, and you're in a growth group of all these things are important, here's what they're doing. They're leading you, they're influencing your life to live the kind of life that God can bless, the kind of life that God dreams for you to have. But there's a third thing that he wants to remind them of. I want you to look at verse 8. He says this. He says, for, you, uh, for from you the word of the Lord has sounded forth, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place. Your faith toward God has gone out, so that we do not need to say anything. For they themselves declare concerning us what manner of entry we had to you, and how you turned from God, to God from idols to serve the true and living God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Listen, if we really believe we're living in the times of the end, then we need to get serious about our faith. We need to live a godly life. And number three, we need to understand the times. Understand the times in which we're living. The next event on God's prophetic calendar is the rapture of the church. The rapture is when Jesus returns for his church, removes the church from the world so he can deal specifically with Israel. And once the church is removed at the rapture, it will set in a seven-year period of time called the tribulation. The Bible speaks of this when it talks about the tribulation. It says this, Now these are the words of the Lord concerning Israel and Judah. For thus says the Lord, We have heard the voice of trembling, of fear, and not of peace. Ask now and see whether a man is ever in labor with child. So why do I see a man with his face with his hands on his loins like a woman in labor uh, and all faces turned pale. Alas, for that day is great so that none is like it. It is the time of Jacob's trouble, but he shall be saved out of it. Now here's the part that's amazing to me and I hope it's amazing to you. Not every generation could say Jesus could come back today, have that belief of the imminent return of Jesus. You see, the reason that it couldn't have happened at other times is because certain Bible prophecies had to be fulfilled. If you and I were believers in the 16th century, Jesus could not have come back at that time. Why? Because Israel did not yet exist as a nation. And Israel is key to Bible prophecy. All of Bible prophecy speaks of Israel as a nation, and that didn't happen until May 14th of 1948 when Israel was given its independence. After the horrors of World War II in Nazi Germany, the world community understood that this would never have happened if Israel had had their own homeland. And so this is, and these were the big things that, that Christians were waiting for, Israel back in the land. Then in 1967, Israel took control of the biblical city of Jerusalem. We see Jews returning to Israel like never before. Even that in and of itself is a fulfillment of Bible prophecy. Let me read you to, to you from Ezekiel 34. I put it in your notes. It says, For this is what the sovereign Lord says, I myself will search for my sheep and look after them as a shepherd looks after his scattered flock when he is with them, so I will look after my sheep. I will rescue them from the places where they were scattered on a day of clouds and darkness, I will bring them out of the nations and gather them from other countries, and I will bring them into their own land. I will pasture them on the mountains of Israel, in the ravines, and all the settlements of the land. So what happens now? 
Listen, what happens now? Israel is in the land. Jews are returning to Israel in record number. Israel is flourishing and prospering in the land that is given to them by God. It's what Jesus said would happen. In Matthew 24, he said these words, Now learn a lesson from the fig tree. When its branches bud and its leaves begin to sprout, you know that summer is near. In the same way, when you see all these things, you can know that his return is very near, right at the door. If you're not aware, throughout the Bible, the symbol for Israel is a fig tree. And Jesus is saying, when you see the fig tree blooming and blossoming and budding, when you see Israel in the land, bearing fruit, prospering and growing, I want you to know something, I'm coming back. And we are witnessing this before our very eyes. We're seeing it before our very eyes. The stage is set for Jesus to come back. The question is, are you ready for his return? That's the question. How do you get ready? How do you get ready? You get ready by realizing something. Realizing that all of us have fallen short. That God has a standard and every single human person, you, me, all of us, we've all fallen short of that standard. And as we've fallen short of that standard, here's what takes place, is that God sent his son Jesus into the world saying, these people are lost, they're fallen, they're messed up, and there's no way they're going to save themselves, so here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to send my son, he's going to die in their place. And now, as Jesus died on a cross, he was buried, and three days later he rose again from the dead. And what happened? Now when we put our faith, our hope, and trust in him, in that finished work on the cross, he saves us. He forgives us. He gives us peace in the present. He gives us hope in the future. And he gives us forgiveness of our past. Listen, my friends, Jesus died for you so you could experience his love, his grace, and his mercy. So you could be delivered from this time of tribulation coming upon the world, of course. But even so you could be delivered from the tribulations and trials that you're experiencing in your life even now. Not to say that life is going to be perfect. Certainly not. But listen, I'd rather go through a storm knowing that God is with me than go through the storm alone. I'd rather go through the, the, a trying time knowing that God is with me than going through it alone. Can I tell you something? Some of you may not even realize this, is that God loves you. And he proved that he loved you when he sent Jesus into the world to die for you. Sometimes we think, Pastor Bob, you don't understand. I have done so many things wrong. I have messed up my life so bad. There is no way that God would accept me. And I'm here to tell you you're wrong. That God will accept you. That God does love you. And that every sin, every mistake, every failing, Jesus died for that too. You say, well, how do you know? Because I know he did it for me. I was a messed up kid. I was lost. And I, as I said, I wasn't searching for God. And it was my older brother one day, who shared this message with me. Told me that Jesus loved me. Told me that Jesus wanted to save me. Told, him that he wa told me that he wanted to forgive me. That he wanted to change my life in a way that I never even dreamed. I had no idea what he was talking about. 
Don't you understand, I never even dreamed that I would be standing here. I mean, I, I, was, I, I was a million miles from here. I was, my life was going in a totally different direction. And I am so grateful to God for getting hold of me, for not letting me walk away and giving me a chance to come to know him, to know who he is. I made that decision 20 years ago. And I can tell you this, it is the best decision I've ever made in my life. Hands down. And it's the decision that set in motion everything else that God has done in my life. And so now, the question is, are you ready? You see, I believe you may be here, and it's possible you've never given your life to Jesus. You may be like me. I, I, I went to parochial school. I learned some things about God. I attended church four or five times in my life, but I didn't know him. I didn't know that God wanted to actually direct my life and lead my life and, and, uh, and, 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 and really walk with me through life. I had no idea. And yet it's true. And it was only when I was confronted with that truth that I made the most important decision I've ever made. And I said, okay, I've got nothing to lose. And I prayed and I invited Jesus into my life and it was the, the best decision I've ever made. And listen, we're gonna close in prayer in just a moment. And as we do, I'm gonna give you an opportunity to pray the prayer that I prayed, to make the decision that I made, to come to know the Savior that I've come to know over the last 20 years, to know this, that he is still in the business of changing lives, and he's ready to change your life.